Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hello friends, in today's episode we are talking to Scott Matter, an anthropologist and a lead product designer for a digital news media and technology company in Australia. We talked to Scott about what it's like to work as an anthropologist in the media sector. We talk about the ethics, implications and effects of measuring engagement metrics in media and how to approach the design of more human metrics like value and impact. We cover the definition of fake news and their relationship to trust and reputation. Scott also speaks to using co-design as a means to keep designers and product managers honest to consumer impact throughout the development process. And lastly, we talk about the differences and synergies between business and academic ethnography and what makes it fun for him to do both. We hope you enjoy it. It's so nice to have you on the show today, Scott. Thanks, Angel. Um, it's super nice to be on the show. So I guess our first question, what do you, what's your profession? My official title is that I'm a user researcher. In practice, I'm more of a design researcher and service designer, but I'm also an anthropologist. And when people ask me, what do I do? I often tell them that I'm an anthropologist. And so what's anthropology to you? Oh, yeah. Not, let's start off with an easy one, right? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, anthropology to me is just, um, it's a way of seeing the world, and it's obviously got a long sort of institutional academic history um, as a discipline, um, but to me, the core of it comes down to, it's, it's a way of thinking about the complexity of the world, especially with humans at the center of that, and all the things that, that humans relate to in the world in that complex system. And how would you define user experience, Scott? Oh, that's a great question. How would I define it? I think so often user experience gets translated as that um, sort of like we're designing a user experience. We've got an interface um, and we want to make sure the interface does the things that we need need it to do, whether that's a, a an in-person service interface or a digital platform. Um, but I think the uh, maybe a better definition is the, the user experience is the actual sort of subjective thing that happens to a person when they use an interface. Um, and we have a lot less control over that because that's happening in a person's own body and own, own mind, even though reactions and responses are coming about because of something that we may have designed. Um, what technologies have you had experience working with so far? Yeah, so I, in, in my sort of mo the most recent part of my career, I work at a digital media publishing company. Well, not just digi digital, it's a media publishing company and work in the product and technology team where we're designing websites and apps um, and those sorts of things. So it's all very sort of customer facing, yeah, web and, and native app um, interfaces. And that's then built on top of all sorts of other software technologies that, that help journalists to publish stories and help people to consume stories um, and serve up ads in the context of those stories and all that sort of thing. So what, what is it like to be an anthropologist in that sort of environment? Like, is there any like um, conflicts or issues for you working in that sort of environment? It's, it's really interesting, actually. So I think one of the really great things about anthropology is that we tend to take a really holistic approach to things. So most of the anthropologists I know really think about 
an event or an experience or an object and how it's connected to a whole wider context. And I find that to be really helpful in doing the work that I do because it helps me work with um, my teammates. So they're product designers and they're product directors um, and they're software developers and help them to think more holistically as well. So that's, I feel like anthropology is a really natural fit for the sort of design research and service design work that I do. Yeah, mainly through that lens of, of thinking holistically. Where there is a bit of tension, I wouldn't call it conflict, where there is a bit of tension though, is in um, working with people to think through kind of the ethical implications of what we do. And where I work, we're, we talk a lot about that sort of stuff. I know there are much bigger debates going on about tech companies um, you know, mainly based in Silicon Valley and how they're, whether they're doing things ethically or not. Um, but coming from an anthro background and having been an academic and having all my research pro- projects go through ethics review, um, it's just a natural part of my process of working. And I think a lot of our designers feel it as a part of their process as well. But it's something that we're constantly working on here. What would be then, from that perspective, the relationship and the nature of the relationship that you think people build with, you know, I don't know, a website, for example? One of the things that 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 um, I was thinking um, around the topic of ethics and and especially digital mm. interaction between people and technologies um, has to do with behavioral economics. You know, a lot of people that work in project management or innovation they assume that they have much more power over what people do and um, mm. how they live their lives a lot. And a lot of this comes also, I think, through behavioral economics. And because in behavioral economics, you're all told that there's nothing that you can't subvert, change, influence, if you have the right system of incentives, messages, communication put in place. Mm. And I think in connection to that, then the topic of ethics comes, of course, if you have so much power over how they engage with a specific thing, <laughs> you need to be responsible and you need to handle your ethics. So that is a very long question, but um, uh-huh, I wanted uh-huh. to answer uh, to, to ask you from your experience, um, have you seen that, that play, that relationship of power and agency um, inside the interactions that you've seen people that do with websites or other types of um, technologies? Yeah, so the, like this is one of the things that we talk a lot about within, within the design team and the research team here and, and the product team in general. So working in a media context, we, the business that we work for and most media businesses are really focused on engagement and measuring engagement. Um, and how do you measure engagement? How do you know if you've got enough engagement? I mean, there's a whole long history of why that is. It's mainly focused on or mainly, mainly comes from, well, we need to know if we're getting people engaged with our product so that we can sell more advertising because that's our revenue stream. Um, and so you get companies, and I would include companies like Facebook and Twitter in there, obviously, who will use nudges and they'll use hooks and they'll use all the behavioral, behavioral economics um, tricks to get people to engage more, uh, more frequently for longer periods of time with their products. Um, but that automatically raises an ethical issue, right? So you're using techniques to get people to do things they otherwise might not do. Um, so you have to start asking the question of, is it good for us to do that? Is it, are we actually benefiting the people that we're, that we're delivering products and services to by essentially tricking them into spending more time using the product and service? I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of 
you know, writing and, and discussion and all sorts of stuff going on about the tech companies, especially social media companies like Facebook um, and Twitter, and about how they're using or misusing those tricks to, yeah. to basically steal people's attention. So from, from my perspective, one of the things that we need to do is we really need to think differently about the way we measure success um, and think about what the implications are of the way that we measure success. So if we, if we give a team the task of build something that increases engagement so that we have more people using our products more frequently for longer periods of time, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. And you can use behavioral economics. You can use all sorts of you know, dark patterns and, and um, design tricks to get people to engage um, you know, you can just persistently send them notifications and you could, you know, build your, build your, um, newsfeed so that it essentially works like a slot machine and gets, gets people hooked into that dopamine reward, the variable reward process, um, so that they kind of lose control over how much they're engaging with the product. Um, so you can do that. And a lot of companies have done that, but the ethical question is always, should we do that? And you have to start asking, well, why are we doing that? Who does it benefit that we're making those decisions? And are we treating the people we call users, the people who use the products or services, are we treating them with respect as human beings when we do things like that? Or are we basically treating them as sources of revenue for us or sources of engagement that we can then capture and sell on? Mm. So if the focus is so much on the mechanics of, of driving them there and keeping them there, what mm. does this say to the relationship that the people build with the actual content? Yeah, it's a really good question. Like I'm, I'm in the midst of, of getting myself and as many of my friends as possible off of Facebook because it's, it just has over the past 11 years that I've been on it, it's felt increasingly hollow and compulsive. Um, like the, I have my relationship with the content in that product has become, I'm very sort of skeptical and cynical of it. I know I'm not seeing everything. I'm not even seeing everything that I might like to see um, or be interested in seeing. I'm not necessarily using that platform to foster better relationships with people that I want to keep in touch with across the world. And so it just feels very exploitative. And, you know, I'm trying to get away from that. I think when you put it in the context of like a media brand, for example, you it's it's maybe a different um, different situation because the, a media website isn't just a platform. It's kind of a representative of the brand, which is a representative of the journalists and the newsroom. Um, and so I think people build a different relationship with a, a, you know, a news website or a news app than they do with a social media app. But I don't have a lot of hard data to back that up. So it's maybe just a hypothesis worth worth testing. Yeah. I, I've always been fascinated in the last months of the origin and the meaning of this fake news thing. What, what do you think it means? What do I think fake news means? Yeah. Yeah, that's look. That's a really good question. Um, that's a hard one to answer in a in a short and easy way. Because it actually um, tells us something about the relationship to the content, right? For sure. I think, you know, there's the, there's the content, but there's also sort of like who the content's coming from. Mm, exactly. So if people will use a brand or a specific journalist as a proxy for is this content trustworthy? Yeah. Um, and that's where you see some of the some of the so-called fake news sites that I've seen examples of. Um, you know, somebody has somebody will design a website that really beautifully spoofs 
a well-known branded website. People will see the branding and they'll see that it looks familiar. Um, they won't look at the URL because it makes, you know, Facebook, for example, makes it really hard for people to look at the URL. They see the brand, they click through, they don't look at where it's come from. And then they take that as truth because they have trust in this, in what they think is the source. Um, but when people are actually manipulating that and presenting stuff as if it's come from a reputable source when it actually hasn't, you know, that's a, that's a big challenge. That's tricky. But at the same time, I don't know. I wonder if, I wonder if there are way, you know, there's, you, we can do fact checking and stuff and, and Google and, and, um, some of the other big tech companies are trying to find ways to combine algorithms and humans to, to do more effective fact checking. But there's also a level of, of training. Like we, as humans, as readers and consumers of information and content, you know, we can't take it for granted that everybody can critically read content um, or that they even want to. So there's probably a combination of what technology can do and what technology has enabled and what... Um, you know, the, our systems of education, which are also forms of technology, what those have um, created and, and where they've mm. failed in having a critically informed and, and a, a citizenry that has the skills to engage with diverse information and assess its value. Um, I really liked the, um, the the point that you were mentioning about trust, and I, I wanted to bring it back to engagement and, and kind of ask you if, if you mm. if you think there's any connection between the two, and and how can an anthropologist, you know, you know, user experience kind of position, um, make that somehow relatable, tangibilize it, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So trust and engagement. Putting my kind of critical anthropologist's hat on, what I'd like to see more of is businesses saying, we actually don't need to capture all of people's attention. We need to give people tools and services that give them what they need and let them go out and do real things in the real world that are more valuable to them than they are to us. There's a whole lot of shifting what the metrics are inside businesses to get that to happen. And there's a whole lot of even shifting, shifting what the point of businesses is to get that to happen. Um, if, you know, if a business is about growth, they have to keep getting more product and selling more product. And if attention is the product, um, they're going to do things to, to capture it and sell it. So, yeah, I don't know. How, how would we build trust with an audience so that we get an optimum amount of engagement? Mm. That's a really good question. And, you know, what's the tipping point when mm. um, even if you manage more engagement, that your trust mm. starts slipping down, you know? Mm. Yeah, so I think, you know, like like I said earlier, that for me, and I think for a lot of other people, the Facebook experience where you're just compulsively spending time scrolling through the news feed on your phone, that seems really hollow and it feels really exploitative. And, you know, all of a sudden you've, you've gone two kilometers past where you wanted to get off the bus and you didn't even realize, and there you are. I guess there's, we just need new ways to measure. Businesses need new ways to measure. And maybe that's one of the things that anthropologists can help with is thinking about People who use the products and services that we design and deliver, if they're a digital platform, those people exist in the real world. They do things in the real world that we can't track and measure. And from a privacy perspective, I think that's a really good thing. The fact that we can't track and measure people in parts of their lives, despite what Google and, and Facebook and others are trying to do, which is monitor us everywhere. We need to find ways to factor what people do with the information we've given them 
in the real world into our metrics. So it's really easy to measure engagement in terms of how much time do people spend on our site? How many times a week do they come back? How many articles do they read? Um, we can do that because we've got the tools to do it, right? We've got Google Analytics and other analytics tools that let us do that really easily. And we can build models on that. We can say, we implemented this feature and it increased engagement for this segment of our users. Um, and that's fantastic. But we, it's much, much harder for us as a business to measure what sort of value that new feature may have created in people's lives. So what we need to do is try and find ways to understand what have we actually facilitated people to do in their day-to-day -day lives? What changes have we let empowered people to make in their lives with the products and the services that we des design and deliver? Um, and so part of it is you know, probably getting out and doing some ethnography, looking at how people use these technologies in the real world, um, looking at how these technologies have become just thoroughly a part of the fabric of society and of all our social interactions, but also understanding pe what people do beyond the interface and beyond the device and trying to find ways to measure the impact that we're having, both negative and positive, so we can understand better, have we done a good thing? Have we made, have we made the world a better place for people by the, the products and services that we've delivered? So you've talked a lot about the impacts that um, these companies have had on people's lives, like them being addicted to scrolling down on Facebook or whatever other things that these applications are um, doing to our lives. But has there mm. any been any like positive relationships you've seen people form with these technologies that you've seen so far? Yeah, sure. So that's I at beginning of the year, and I guess it's it's only sort of February now. But beginning of the year, I wrote a really long piece that I posted on Medium that I then shared on Facebook and I made it public because I wanted, it's my whole getting off of Facebook thing and why we all need to leave and do something else. And some of the, some of the, um, the comments that I got from people, uh, you know, friends that I've known for years and people who are friends of my friends who I've never met, some of the comments were really interesting. So like, you know, there were, there were comments about like, yeah, this is great and all, but you know, I moved to a new city. I didn't know anybody it was really easy for me to go on Facebook and find a group of people who have similar interests to me and then meet up with them. And now I've got these friends. So there are really positive things that these, these technologies do, um, ways that they help us to build new connections and new relationships. And that's really cool. Like I'm, I'm not anti-technology and I'm not anti-social networking uh, by any means. But I, I just think that, you know, the you know, we're going to deliver these benefits. We're going to do cool things using technology. But can we do it without exploiting people? Can we actually design and deliver services and products with people, with the people that are going to, that are going to use it rather than for them? Because when we start designing for people, it becomes really easy to design things that actually exploit them and get them to do what we want them to do rather than what they would rather be doing. So... I really like that you're mentioning this because um, I wanted to ask you about the practices that you that you guys work with uh, in mm. design and and um, how much these practices are are including the users um, mm. and if if you've seen from your experience some of the techniques and tools of anthropology being become embedded in in the processes inside the company. When I when I started out working here. Um, we, the, the research role was, if a lot of people conceived of it as, okay, you're going to do user testing. We've got this new thing that we've 
developed and it's almost ready to launch. Um, and we just want to make sure it's not terrible. So we want you to put it in front of users and get some feedback. And that's evolved a lot. We do a lot more upfront research when we're at the sort of strategic end of the process, thinking about what is it we should build in the first place um, and how should we design it. Um, and over the past year and a bit, we've actually done a lot in terms of you know, what are the problems we're trying to solve? What are the problems that people have that we can use our technology and the assets that we have in terms of content and information to help people solve? Um, so in terms of like specific techniques and stuff, I think we can always do more in terms of co-design and collaboration with end users. Um, I'd like us to, to go further in that direction, partly because it, it keeps our designers and our developers even more honest. Um, when you actually have to say, well, we've designed this to do X. Is that a good thing? Is, is that useful? Excuse me. What if we change it to do something else that actually benefits the business better? Um, when you have to justify your decisions to the people who are going to use your product, I feel like that's going to keep us a lot more honest and think, think ethically a lot more. Have but we're still a ways away from that. Have you had processes when you had to assist in killing products? Um, yeah, but mainly because they weren't performing, mainly because the products just weren't doing what they, what they needed to do for the business or for users. Um, so, you know, there would, there would be, um, you know, an app that was launched experimentally and somebody really liked it in the business. So they kept it alive for a couple of years and, um, it just wasn't going anywhere. It was costing a lot of money to maintain. Not that many people were using it. So we had to kill it off. What ideally what we'd do is we'd learn from that. We'd th study sort of what are people doing with it? How could we do it better? What can we learn from this experience? And we've done some of that. There's been other stuff where it's, you know, there are things at the really early idea stage. Like one of the first projects I worked on um, at this company was we think we can develop a new service for um, people in the fitness industry to help connect with clients. The two, two of us um, were working on, on the project as researchers. We went out and met a bunch of people in the fitness industry, and we did sort of short ethnographic interviews about what their lives were like and what they were struggling with. And what we came back with was, well, that's actually not a valuable, useful service. These are the things that they're struggling with. At that point in time, it was just not something that the business could reasonably provide um, and didn't want to invest in developing the capability to do it. So we used the research to say, well, that's a cool idea that you've come up with. We don't think it's going to work. Here's an alternative. And it ended up that the, the project um, got shelved. And that's probably a good thing because there wasn't money and time wasted on trying to build a thing that nobody was going to use. How have you approached doing ethnography within a company? Like with mm. the time limits and that? How have you done that? Yeah, it's really, uh, I use ethnography in the context of business research very loosely. In my previous life, well, previous career, not a whole life, but previous career, um, you know, I was an academic anthropologist. I did my PhD and went and spent, you know, a year at a time in Kenya doing field research and getting to know a community really, really well, um, living in a community day to day, you know, sleeping in, in the houses, spending time with people, eating meals together, doing what we typically think of as ethnography from a sort of a, an anthropological perspective. In a business context, um, anthropology is a bit different, or sorry, ethnography is a bit different. We don't have the luxury usually of going out and spending a long period of time. 
So you might be doing something like rapid ethnography where you're trying to immerse in a, in a situation or a community really, really quickly. And maybe it's a space of a couple of weeks. Um, maybe it's even just taking um, an ethnographic lens and going into an environment for a few hours at a time. Um, so in terms of techniques, it's probably something that um, the uh, like tech researchers would, would think of more as, as contextual inquiry, going into a space and seeing how people use a product. The benefit that I think anthropologists bring to it with this sort of ethnographic lens is that when you're thinking ethnographically, you're thinking about um, the context and the holistic environment that a product or an interaction lives in. So you're not just looking for how is the person using product X at this moment in their office. You're looking at all the other things going on in the office in that context that might influence the relationships people have with each other and with the technology. Um, so you can, you don't have to do, you know, a year-long field study to bring ethnography into a business context. Um, at the same time, it can be a tough sell to say that we're going to go out to where people actually live and eat and breathe and find out what they're doing. There's often a tendency for um, for business stakeholders to want you to bring people into the into our office environment so that we can talk to them here because um, it's easier for for our stakeholders to observe the interviews and even to participate in the interviews when they don't have to take a half day off and come with us out into the field. Um, but that's another thing that I'd like to see more more um, more companies and my company in particular doing is more actual in-field observation and participant observation. One of the big discourses that I hear, for example, working when I was working in business was like social science can't be linked to statistical results that, that can work in a company long term and scale. And another ah. similar discourse that I've heard repeatedly inside academia was like, capitalism is bad, neoliberalism is bad, you know, all mm. the people working in business and innovation are just these devils that want to make a profit on, at the expense of anything, you know? Yeah, and, right. And both these views are extremely, I think, um, pervasive within each environment. You know, so um, I, for me personally, from my experience, when I moved into academia, I, 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 I was received you know, with that expectation to prove that I was a hungry, thirsty, profit capitalist. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, yeah, and then when I got, went out of academia, I started working in business um, as an applied anthropologist. Um, I was always challenged by the business sector on the applicability of the research findings and the power of the intervention mm. that I was about to shape. You know? So applicability in what sense? You mean applicability to meet business objectives? Yeah, but from the start, yeah. like I remember I had this big project where even in the first meeting, before going out there doing the study, I was challenged by the CEO. He said, but how is this going to help me achieve my objective of X, Y, and Z? I don't think you can do that by talking to 20 people. Yeah, right. So prove um, it to me before you start, you know, almost. Yeah, <laughs> prove that this is going to be useful to me so that I can justify paying you to go do this thing. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a really interesting challenge. And I think there's such a sort of hegemonic power mm -hmm. of numbers and um, formulas and big data. It's just really easy for people to say, oh, well, the data says, right? And the more people that you have talked to, the more reliable the data. So I think as qualitative people, as a lot of anthropologists are, um, one of the first things we have to do is often sell the idea that 
we don't actually need a huge sample to get valid insights that we can use. Um, I think there's a really big power in using mixed methods approaches. Um, and it's something that I, our team always tries to do is we, we have to think about what is the right approach to answer the questions that we have um, and figure out, do we need to make qual and quant research complementary in this case to answer our questions? Is it really just something that we need numbers on? Do we need to know how much? Or do we need to know the underlying why? And I think a lot of times that underlying why is what gets missed in a business context. Mm. But at the same time, there are tons of agencies that focus just on that. There are strategy agencies. There are research agencies that go out and do just amazing, really cool projects um, exploring the problem space. Mm. Um, so, like, I think of somebody like Indy Young, who's, who um, his work I really admire and, and really enjoy. And she, you know, one of her biggest things is you need to treat people as people. And if you're already thinking of them as users of your product or users of the thing that you're selling, you're in the solution space. You're not really even trying to understand what their needs are at that point. Um, and so for me, my, my angle on this has often been, why are we making the business, deci business decisions that we're making? Why are, we, why, are, why are we building this thing or this service? Um, and if there isn't really good evidence to support well, we know that this service is going to do X because we understand that people need um, X, then I'm always trying to advocate for, well, we really need to go and find out whether that's valid. We need to test these assumptions yeah. before we start building a thing and spending, mm -hmm. you know, two years and millions of dollars to develop a new thing that it could easily turn out nobody's going to use. Yeah, and I think there's there's so much to, to say also about the connection between um, wanting big numbers because in mm. some ways a way of mitigating the risk mm. you know it, it's kind of mm -hmm. like you know tell me that the future is going to be bright tell me that this thing that we're going to invest time and money in it's not going to fail yeah. um, and you know the power of data to kind of act as the as this oracle that tells you everything is going to be all right um, very very early on <laughs> yeah totally um, so we use we use it a bit flexibly. We don't use it super rigidly, but we use a kind of riskiest assumption testing framework in our strategy projects now. Um, and so the idea is that you want to make all of your assumptions as explicit as possible so that you know, you know what you know, you know what you think you know, um, and you have a pretty good idea of what you don't know. And you try and identify which of those are the biggest risks right now and what do you need to do to test whether the assumption is true. Um, and sometimes that means... Um, digging into some data, whether it's, um, you know, market research that's been done or whether it's analytics. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it means, well, we actually have to go and find out, you know, what people are struggling with so that we can figure out how to deliver a service that's valuable. Um, and that's where the, so the, you know, the anthropology comes in in two ways there in trying to figure out what are our assumptions, what's our knowledge in the team or in the business um, and sort of doing that kind of um, looking at the complex system of thinking and behaviors and existing products and services. And then it comes in in terms of, well, when it's a, when it's a qual project, when we have questions that, about why, um, we need to be using techniques that will help us to get that information. Scott, I just have one question before we kind of tr have to slowly wrap this up because of the, <laughs> sure our, our time constraints. But you yeah. were mentioning about the challenges as kind of um, as a young, as an anthropologist moving from the mm. academic space to the um, to the applied space. And for our listeners mm. out there that are kind of contemplating that choice right now, 
either mm -hmm. students or professors, um, what would you have as an advice for them to consider before taking that decision? Can I also add, could you maybe tell us like what you love the most about being an applied anthropologist as well? Because for me, I'm just like curious as to know like what makes it so fun, I guess. Like what, what do you like about it? Yeah, cool. Um, so let me answer that one first and then we'll come back to your other, your, your other question, Karina. So what makes it fun to be an applied anthropologist? Um, I've, so going back to the beginning of grad school for me when I started my master's, um, I remember saying something to one of my professors about why I was there. And it was something along the lines of, I want to build the skills to do research that actually makes the world a better place. And if I'm not doing that, if I'm not contributing to changing the world and solving problems that people have, then there's really not that much point in me doing it. Um, and that sounded super pretentious. It sounds super pretentious of me thinking back, you know, 15 years ago um, to, to that version of Scott. Um, but I still stick to that. I think that's a really important. That's one of my biggest motivations in what I do. Um, and so I my trajectory was I got into sort of anthropology of development, doing international development and political ecology stuff and looking at um, trying to change the world through those practices and those institutions. And it was really, really frustrating for a lot of reasons. One of them being that it's it's slow and there's so much inertia and it's it can be really hard to make an impact. And working in um, you know, a business context as an applied anthropologist, it maybe means that the problems I'm helping to solve are different. Um, you know, I work in a, a media company. We provide, a, we help our journalists provide a service that is really valuable to society and to individuals. Um, so that's good. Uh, but we also, as an anthropologist here, I get to work really quickly. So I actually get to work with teams who are trying to design new services and new products to solve particular problems. And I get to help them identify what the problems are and I get to help them design the actual solutions or prototypes for solutions. And then I get to help them test whether those solutions are actually working. Um, so there's almost a really fast and tangible feedback that I get from my work that when I was on more of an academic track, um, I didn't get to see in my research work. So maybe I'm just impatient. Maybe I'm too impatient to sort of do really huge pieces of research over decades, which is probably what it takes for a lot of people to see the results of their work in terms of real change. But yeah, that's the, one of the things that I really love about it is that I get to see things happening really quickly and I get to be a part of the process. Um, and so that's why applied anthropology to me is is. Um, super interesting, super valuable. That was a bit of a long rambling answer to that one. Um, sorry, Karina, what was the, what no was your problem. other question? Um, so the second was one was for, for people in our audience that are kind of pondering the applied route, um, mm. thinking, is it good for me? Would I, would, would it fit with me? Um, would you have any advice that would help them or guide them in making that, that choice? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's thinking about like, what are your motivations and what do you want to what do you want to see happen as a result of your work? Where if you move into sort of more applied anthropology, you're going to you're going to see that the work you do has implications and consequences. Um, and you have to be a bit comfortable with that, thinking that like, well, I'm going to have a real effect on the world. 
I'm going to have to be really careful about the things that I do or try to be really careful about the things that I do so that that effect is in net more good than bad. And then I think, I don't know, I guess it depends on the, the experience that people have. Like if you've gone through, um, you know, and done, done a, a PhD in anthropology, you've spent three, five, seven years on a project um, and a really important project, something that's become, you know, a central part of your identity um, and switching into an applied setting where you're probably working on a time frame of weeks or months rather than years. Um, yeah, it's a little bit different. You maybe won't get to go as deep as you'd like to go. You might be frustrated about the kind of the, the constraints in how much time you can spend and, and the depth of relationships you can build with people. Um, but then again, maybe there are people who are working in, in places and in, on projects where they actually can spend a long period of time and, and develop deep relationships with the people they're working with and do really cool collaborative long-term stuff. I'm not sure. Well, I wish we really had more time to keep talking with you, but unfortunately, we've kind of run out now. Um, so for all our listeners out there, we'll link any of your works that you want them to read or look up onto in our description. And yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Next time, I, I want to ask you the questions. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.